Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Matt Bell. Matt is the CEO of Pivotal, an organization in San Jose, California, that supports young people aging out of foster care. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for joining our podcast series. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you so much. And you know, it's our pleasure to have you because we really are honored that one, you applied for our awards program, but two, that your program was at the level that the judges for our awards program last year deemed your organization as one of the winners in the mid-size to large organization category. So first, congratulations for that. Thank you. Well, before we talk about Pivotal, I would like to find out a little bit more about you and your background. So could you please share your journey? What brought you to working as the CEO for Pivotal? Sure. You know, like a lot of people over the last, my professional career over the last 25 years or so, looking for volunteer opportunities. I was a Jesuit educated guy in high school, went to Bellarmine College Prep here in San Jose. And, you know, they really focus on being men and women for others. So that varies that service mentality, that service orientation, and also a really a strong sense of justice, I think was always instilled in me. So when I began my professional career, it was just a natural thing to want to get involved in the community and, you know, quote unquote, give back and to serve in any way I can. It just so happened that the first opportunity I had was a, a small middle school, Catholic-based, Jesuit-based middle school, coincidentally, really, that focused on really serving kids in low-income neighborhoods, underperforming schools, taking them out of those schools, getting them caught up to grade level. And then they offered scholarships to the local Catholic and other private high schools. And that's where I really saw the impact of education and that the importance of equal access and equal opportunity for everybody and how that little school so dramatically changed the trajectory of these young men and women's lives. Really powerful. And that's what really got me first started down this path. Was on that board for about 11 years and became very close with the Jesuit priest who started it. And, you know, we remained friends. I did some other community service board work and things like that. He was about to go start a new high school on the east side of San Jose, which is an overwhelmingly Latino, lower income neighborhoods in San Jose, a new high school that is based on the Cristo Rey model. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the model, there's about 36 or 38 schools nationwide. And this one was just starting in San Jose in its very first year. The students go, they're all kind of first gen, very focused on first generation kids exclusively low-income students attending the school. They attend school four days a week in an extended schedule. And then one day a week, they work at a Silicon Valley company, an internship, if you will, getting that exposure to jobs, the work experience very early on in their lives. And through that, the school gets paid for those internships and that helps offset the cost of, of their tuition. So don't want to go too deep into Cristo Ray, but again, it was really an extension of what the work that I had begun previously at the middle school. So I was in charge of this work-study program. So it was my job to go out to Silicon Valley companies and say, here, take our 14, 15, 16-year-old kids and into your offices and provide them you know, a great work opportunity. And that, again, just fanned the flames of my passion for this work. 
and was there for about five years, had tremendous success there, seeing these students get access to these different jobs. And ideally, a student will get two, three, or even four different jobs during their time at school to really get exposed to what the careers are. Because so often, you know, kids just don't know what the jobs are, especially when you're talking about a community like this, where in many cases, their exposure or family, school, maybe, you know, a sports team, and that's about it. So that school had its first graduation, very successful on a par with the other private high schools in the area in terms of the number of kids going to four-year universities. And then now since we've seen very high college graduation rates, and again, really seeing how just once given the opportunity that these young people can really excel and really transform their lives. So that work really led to my role here at Pivotal. Last year, I was looking for a new opportunity. You know, like a lot of people, I had sort of a a general sense of the foster care system, knew there were a lot of problems, knew there was a lot of trauma involved. As a, a parent myself, you can only imagine how the impact of family being separated from each other would have, not to mention the circumstances that lead to that separation. So I saw this job opportunity. It was really in alignment with my passion and my experience. But when I started digging a little deeper into the foster care system and really started taking a look at the outcomes, I really, frankly, was shocked by how poor the outcomes are for many foster youth. And so this was like, I need to go do this work. Then I saw the impact that Pivotal was having and how those outcomes were dramatically improved through their experience with programs at Pivotal that I got really excited about the job. Fortunately, I was selected through a a national search and started here in January of 2023. What is it about you, do you think, that you stood out among all the candidates? You know, it's a really good question. (laughs) I jokingly said it must have been a pretty weak field. But no, (laughs) honestly, I think my ideas about bringing more of this workforce development aspect to the agency was appealing to the selection committee. For most of its history, Pivotal, which was formerly known as Silicon Valley Children's Fund, really started out as a children's shelter in the very beginning, back in 1989. As it went forward, it really it started getting into the business of providing scholarships to foster youth. But what they recognized pretty quickly was there aren't enough foster youth in college to give these scholarships to. So they said, we need to do something about that. So that gave birth to this program, this one-on-one coaching program, educational coaching that we employ now and have for many years now, where each foster youth gets a dedicated one-on-one coach to help them navigate starting in high school, although this year I'm excited to say We've started in eighth grade, but primarily starting in high school, having that coach to help navigate, get through, graduate high school, matriculate to college. If it's a community college, transferring to a a four-year university and earning that bachelor's degree. That's our bread and butter. That's what our primary focus is. And the impact of that for many years now has been just tremendous here in Santa Clara County, where San Jose is. And over the years, we expanded to San Mateo County. And just this year, we started in Alameda County, where Oakland is on the East San Francisco Bay. That's a lot of growth since you stepped in that position. Well, just to be clear that we were doing all that already, but the new thing that I think that I'm bringing, again, is this focus on career and workforce development. One of the ways we're doing that is we just this year started a corporate partner program. So we're going out to Silicon Valley companies, much in the way that I did back at Krista Ray and saying, we want to partner with you in a number of ways. One is of course, we want your money, right? We need your funding to help support our, our organization. But equally important, we want the engagement of your employees with our foster youth. We call them scholars. 
we want that engagement for whether it's small group interaction, talking about careers, talking about college exploration, just mentorship in general. We want to provide opportunities for our youth to access your employees who've already been through that process in high school and college and are in their careers and can really be great resources for these young people. So that's part of it. The other part is providing summer internships for our college-age youth that are in our program. Summer internships. And then, of course, just as an organization, we provide scholarships, about a half a million dollars a year in scholarships to all of our scholars who are attending community college and four-year universities. So how do you find your young people? They have to have an interest in being college-bound, I would imagine. They do. And it's a great point, Lynn, in that college isn't for everyone whether you're in the foster system or not. And so that's why there's this work and career aspect of our agency is so important as well. There are going to be some who just aren't on a path for college. So how else can we support them in their journey? And by the way, our mission is really to help foster youth achieve the lives they want for themselves. So we're very scholar-led in that way, very youth-led. We want to hear their voices. What are their goals? What are their plans? And then help support them get to that goal. So for our youth that are in the college-bound path, we work with them all the way through, help them make sure they're in a position to graduate high school, apply to colleges. So we go with them hand-in-hand all the way through that process. And once they're in college, again, supporting them with scholarships and the summer internships and just the one-on-one coaching that they can know that they've got someone to rely on. And let's face it, foster youth have a lot of adults in their lives that they're told that they need to interact with for this or that, whether it's their social worker or their CASA or whatever it is. In this case, our coaches really become really trusted kind of partners and confidants for our scholars, someone they can rely on, not only just for the education support, but just all the things that happen in life. You know, when life happens, our coaches are there to help support them along the way. And of course, there's going to be setbacks and failures. And what our coaches are really good at, what I'm amazed by, these people, how they say, okay, that happened. What did we learn? And where are we? And what's the next step? And in collaboration with the scholar, really then now figuring out what the path is going forward from there. So the young people involved in the workforce development, are they also called scholars? Yes. I mean, it's not really a separate program. Okay. My vision for the organization really is at some point in the future that our coaches are coaching them equally on the education side as well as on the career side. Well, you would think that that would go hand in hand because they'd have to have a sense of what they want to do in life to know what education to get. That's 100% <laughs> correct. And what we see, frankly, is that so many of our scholars that are matriculated in college want to be social workers or counselors. This is what they've been exposed to in their lives. And because they haven't had greater exposure to what other careers or opportunities are, that's why what we're doing is going to be so important. And really starting at in high school and giving them those opportunities to interact with different companies from different parts of the market, different businesses. Different industries, yeah. To really see what they are. Because what I love about them is they want to give back. They want to do good. They benefited from organizations like Pivotal. They want to do the same thing. What I want to say is, if that's what you want, good on you. Let's go do that. But here are other ways that you can actually contribute and give back. You can go to work for Cisco Systems and be an engineer and serve on a board of directors or be a mentor or donate your money. Lots of different ways to support and do good for foster youth coming up behind them. Right, exactly. 
So young people in the workforce development plan, do they also potentially have exposure to the trades? Absolutely. I don't know how it is here in other cities, but in the Bay Area, costs are so high. Cost of living is so high. And there's really a real challenge for those in the trades, contractors, construction firms, specialty subcontractors to attract talent because in many cases, it's hard to live in Silicon Valley, you know, doing one of those jobs, especially early on. So again, if college is not the track for one of our youth, we have relationships with the different trade councils here to point them towards their apprenticeship programs and make sure they're, again, aware of what these other opportunities are. Because without someone like us or just the awareness is not there of what a potential career is in the trades. Exactly. And I think, you know, it's tough because the best time to get the education is when you're younger and you don't have all the commitments in life, right, that take up so much time. But on the flip side, you don't really have a lot of life experience to know what it is that you really like or what you want to do. Right. So having a lot of different exposures to different types of jobs, I think is really a great approach because then at least they have an inkling, whereas so many young people go to college and they have to choose a major. (laughs) Right. And how many of us are not doing the work that we went to college for? I was a political science major, so uh, case in point. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the other thing that we're really fortunate here in California and maybe in other places too, but very strong community college system that also offers different vocational programs rather than the regular kind of AA degree, but vocational programs that are specific to maybe jobs, say, in the solar industry or in even in programming for the tech community here. Lots of more and more options all the time. And the scholarships that we provide also are applicable to those programs. And you know what? You had mentioned that you're starting this year to work with young people as young as in eighth grade, right? Right. That is the time to start. I mean, let's be real here. (laughs) What more challenging time in everyone's life is more challenging than in middle school. And one of the things that we see from the data is in high school, how you perform academically in your very first, in your freshman year can be very predictive of how you do overall. So to get that really strong start academically in high school is really important. So we try to do that. Ideally, we have our scholars are referred to us through the county or through the county office of education. But sometimes we get them freshman year, but sometimes it's not till a sophomore or junior year for various reasons. And in which case, sometimes a course correction can be even more challenging the later you are. So our thinking is starting off in middle school because who can't use some support in middle school. But the important thing is to be on really solid footing starting high school with your coach, with your plan for your whole high school, your four years, and the focus of the importance of getting that high school diploma and moving on into college. So when that is instilled early on, I'm going to go to college if that's the goal from the very beginning and keeping that front and center all the way through is critically important. You know what? My own experience, I was in foster care, but before things went bad in my family, that was instilled in us, the importance of education. So at least we got that in our younger years. So I never had a question in my mind, and neither did my sister about going to college. We weren't sure how it was going to happen because we were you know, in the foster care system, but we knew we were going to go. Well, you're very fortunate in that way. And in so many cases, you know, these, again, are potential first-generation students, parents maybe not having had the opportunity to attend college. Maybe they're immigrants 
whatever the case may be. So that focus on college isn't always instilled as early as it was with you. So to the extent that we can get in there and really reinforce that and keep that message front and center all the way through is really important. And I think one of the difficulties, and I don't want to paint too broad a brush, but I worked at Milton Hershey School, which is a residential K-12 school for at-risk youth in Pennsylvania. I worked there 14 years with the house parents. And one of the things that was just a reality is not all young people came from, I'll say, families or communities that even had a positive opinion of getting higher education. Right. So then they have that pressure as well. And that's tough. That's really difficult. Yeah. And a lot of times it takes some time to really, until they really embrace, you know, that concept. In some cases, as you're describing, sometimes there's actual sort of a negative view of people who attend college and maybe in a different sort of social strata. So our coaches are really good at that. One of the best things that I did when I started here in January is we're only about 35 or 36 people total. So we're not a very large organization, but most of them are coaches. But I met with everybody for an hour in the first six weeks that I started the role just to make sure I, A, was building strong relationships with each person in the organization, but really learning about their job. Again, I was not familiar with and didn't come from work in the foster care system. So I learned a lot from our coaches and in particular what I was really blown away by not only their commitment, their dedication to our scholars, but how each of them in a different way, they brought their own lived experience, their own personality to each of those relationships in different ways, but all are successfully creating these incredibly strong and trusting bonds with their scholars and the importance of that in their lives not our coaches, well, I suppose in the coaches' lives too, but for our scholars to have that kind of relationship. And we work really hard to sustain that relationship all through high school. They typically, the students that are with us in high school, then transition to a different coach in college just because the whole knowledge base and approach and all that stuff is different in college than it is in high school and the expertise or the knowledge that coaches need to have so that we do have that one transition. But we really try to keep those transitions to a minimum One of the things that I've been so impressed by is our coaches' ability to develop these very strong and trusting bonds and relationships with our scholars. And it's really fascinating because they all go about it in different ways, whether it's bringing their lived experience. We have some who experience the foster care system, but then others just have their different lives and their different experiences and their different personalities that they all come at it in different ways, but what they ultimately all end up with these very strong frankly, loving and supportive relationships with their scholars. And for them to have that and know they've got that person that they can rely on, and no matter what's going on in their lives, no matter if it's a tough time in school or at home, or if they need other resources like access to mental health care or housing or all those things, our coaches are there in a position to support them with whatever they need. Well, how do you match the coaches with the young people? That's a great question. Each of our coaches... First of all, just taking a step back, mostly all of them have degrees in social work, so they have that kind of background and training coming in. We do an extensive training here at Pivotal on sort of the pivotal way and how we like to go about coaching and what's entailed in the role and what are the goals of the program, et cetera. So each of our coaches gets that training. And then the coaching, the coach supervisor who oversees, for example, the high school coaches, takes a look at every incoming scholar and does an analysis. It's not super scientific, but who would be maybe the best match for whom? Sometimes in the intake process, 
We have a scholar who might indicate they're more comfortable with either a male or a female or someone maybe of similar ethnic background, things like that. And we try to accommodate all those things. But at the end of the day, all of our coaches are going to be very well equipped to build those relationships with just about any of our scholars. Help me understand the training. You said it's extensive. So do you bring new coaches in one-on-one with somebody to go over everything? Do you have a training class like once a month or once a quarter for coaches? What does that look like? That's a combination of that. First of all, they come in in many cases while they're attending schools here locally. For example, San Jose State University, we have really across the street from us in downtown San Jose. We have a strong relationship with their social work program, and we have coaching interns who, as a part of getting their degree, they get experience here for a year as coaching interns. And then our pipeline of new people is really, that's our pipeline, and they come through. So they come in with a lot of experience and training already under their belt for us. But we also do get people, you know, brand new to us or maybe who have not gone through that program. And there's, I think, about 40 hours of training for the initial training for coaches that is conducted, you know, on a weekly basis once they start. And in most cases, if they're brand new, they take on scholars, but they also have their coach supervisor involved in that process. And then at some point, there's that handoff where they take it on on themselves over a period of time. I'm not sure exactly the period of time, but one of the things that has really stood out to me in my time here is how sensitive and protective our program's team is of our scholars and making sure that we're doing a good job matching that the relationships that are being built that we expect to be built, if there are challenges, we, you know, wanting to address those and very, very proactively making sure that the foundation of those relationships is positive and productive. So you have a mix of these young people, maybe not all young, but from the university, and then you have volunteer. Are these volunteers? No, no, they're paid positions. They're paid positions. Okay. So you have people from the community as well? In other words, are you very, how selective are you of the people that you're bringing in? Are they always somebody from, let's say, the university, or do you have folks from the community also involved? No, I think it's definitely a mix of that. You don't have to come through and have that social work degree. We really look for that social work degree because that obviously provides such a strong foundation for our coaches, but we definitely do. And you mentioned, you asked earlier about coaches being young people. I think most of them seem to be, but we also have some much more seasoned coaches. And when I was talking before about how they come at it differently, a couple of the coaches, one in particular that I'm thinking of, Laura, she's, uh, I don't want to guess Laura's age, but she's been a mom. (laughs) She's a seasoned coach at this for, you know, 20 plus years. She comes at this as kind of like the tough mom love, you know, and that really works for her because of who she is and her personality. Whereas, again, different approaches are employed by different coaches, but she really brings that to her kids and is is so passionate about it. And you see, because we have a lot of gatherings. In fact, we've got one next Friday where it's the scholar holiday party. So we've already, we've got over 200 RSVPs. We're really excited. And all the coaches will be there. In many cases, the coaches are bringing their scholars to it. But I've been able to witness coaches interacting with their scholars firsthand. And you can just see the trust and the strength of those relationships and the familiarity and all those things and how much they really rely on their coaches. It's really a beautiful thing. Do these relationships last beyond the young person's time with Pivotal? Undoubtedly. First of all, so many of our alumni want to be involved. And so we have a scholar alumni program where they participate in a lot of different things. Sometimes they can be mentors for our current scholars. 
Sometimes they'll speak at an event where, and maybe share their story, whether it's a fundraising event or a other community-based event where them coming in and really sharing not only their stories, but the impact that Pivotal has had, it can be, you know, very powerful. We tend to have a lot of our youth, you know, staying in touch. And I'm always blown away when, you know, I meet one of our alumni and they say, oh, and they name all these different people by their first name, who many of whom are still with the organization for 12, 13 years now, who they, you know, really still have that connection with and keep in touch with. The other thing that's really benefiting our organization is on our board of directors, we have two of our alumni on our board of directors. Oh, great. Yeah. One of them has started his own nonprofit called Raising the Bar, and it's very focused on housing for foster youth. And the other, she got her start in one of our internships in the tech world, and that led to her current job where she works for a tech company here in Silicon Valley. It's wonderful to have that perspective on the board. Yeah. To have their voices so often, they chime in with kind of bringing us back to what's important here and focusing us on what we should always be focused on, which are the actual scholars and how we're serving them. Exactly. Well, how many young people, how many scholars do you have in a year's time or at any one time, whatever the best way is to describe that? Annually, we serve a little over 500 scholars per year, and that includes high school and post-secondary. And then again, those who are not actively engaged in either at this time. We have specific coaches that do outreach to scholars who, are, who aren't currently enrolled in school, mostly in post-secondary. And we're reaching out, trying to help with whatever is keeping them from returning to back to school, if that's what their plan is. I like to participate in some of these meetings wherever possible, again, just for my own learning experience. And I've been a part of one of those conversations where one of our coaches was really instrumental in helping one of our scholars get housing and so that he can return to community college. Well, that was going to be my next question. How do you approach helping these young people find housing? You have 500 in a year. I'm going to guess you don't have 500 apartments <laughs> that you run because you haven't mentioned housing you know, on your campus, so to right. speak. So how do you help? Is it just incidental, like on a case-by-case basis? It is. We keep a lot of data here. A lot of it is to where their housing situation we have a number of partners here in Silicon Valley who focus, I mentioned Raising the Bar, there are others, Bill Wilson Center, others that really focus on housing, and we just have strong referral relationships with those organizations. So all of our coaches are equipped with like the resources to refer to whatever the need is, housing. Mental health has been a really big need here, especially in the last few years. We're currently partnering with an organization called Think Hopeful. And they are very focused on working in a virtual way with post-secondary age youth and specific focus on the BIPOC community. We're a natural fit for them. And so they're working with a number of our scholars and providing either online or, or on Zoom or whatever they call their Zoom process. That's probably not the same level as if you were seeing a therapist, but at least it's something that they can they help them if they're really struggling. And if it's really significant, helping them get to the right resources for their mental, as they call it, mental wellness. I'm making notes of all of these organizations you're mentioning so that I can put them in the resource list on the website. Do you feel that you are particularly fortunate to be in California insofar as the state and or county awareness of the issues around these young people and or support of the young people in foster care? Because my impression is California is kind of the head of the pack as far as that's concerned. 
You know, I don't have experience in other states, but I do, I would agree with you that it seems to me that California is doing a lot, uh, especially most recently in the last couple of years. One of a bill, a bill has passed a pilot program that offers that universal basic income of $1,000 per month for, for youth aging out of the system. I mean, how important is that? Having an extra $1,000 as you're trying to get your start and your feet on the ground and getting, you know, on with your future. So that's a pilot program that I hope will become law and something that is funded year in and year out. Most recently, the legislature passed another bill, utilizes funds, particularly if a student is attending a University of California, a California state school, or a community college here in California. If you qualify, and there are some qualifications, but it's pretty broad, you can basically attend college for free here in California if you're in the foster care system. So there's a lot of good support going there. We know that our scholarship is still going to be really important, especially for those attending school out of state, as well as those here that may not qualify for various reasons. So we still see a really strong need for our scholarship program, but more and more California is really, I think, doing a really good job. Interestingly, in this whole policy and advocacy front, where there's a couple things I want to share. One is that one of our alumni recently reached out to me and said, hey, you know, there's been all of this loan forgiveness going on here what about foster youth? You know, why aren't we getting that same kind of relief? And especially with now foster youth being able to, college becoming so much more affordable and foster youth now going forward are going to incur far less debt as a result of this. But what about people like Jennifer who still have about $35,000 of debt that she's paying off? And so I said, well, let's go see. So one of our board members is Patty Cortez. Senator Dave Cortez is a state senator and our representative for this area. She connected us to his office. We met with the senator. And her idea is, whether it's loan forgiveness or funding to help pay down the college debt, he's very interested in this idea and is going forward and reaching out to other senators to see if there's interest in perhaps a bill. Now it's a tough year to get new funding and things like that, but he's very serious about it. And it's really cool that one of our youth are the ones that came forward and if it goes all the way through and it's successful, what a great success story that will be for someone kind of having the agency to really come forward and say, let's do something about this. Indeed. Yeah. So that's one thing. The other thing that we're involved with that's really exciting, and I've only come into it this past year in this role, but it's been ongoing for a number of years now. There's a collective of agencies, Pivotal is one of them. There are eight total of agencies across the state that have come together in what's called the Foster Youth Pre-College Collective. We call it TFYPC. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but the Foster Youth Pre-College Collective is comprised of agencies just like Pivotal that employ this one-on-one -on -one direct care approach with foster youth. This, just as I described, these others do it in slightly different ways, but it's the same concept. We've taken and we've gathered our outcome data for the youth that we serve, and we've aggregated it and come up with a blueprint that we're going to be launching in Sacramento early in 2024, basically saying, look, this is the way that California should be funding services for foster youth specifically. Because right now, the funding comes from the state to the counties, and the counties pretty much decide how they're going to serve and how they'll spend that money serving foster youth. So we need to go county to county. Right now, we're in three counties and say, this is the way you should be doing it, and Pivotal is the one but we only have so much reach. So the idea is to get at the state level prescriptive funding for this approach. And so there are a lot of people in this collective that have been in doing this work for 20 years serving foster youth. To a person, this is the most exciting thing that they've worked on in their career. So 
it's very okay. exciting to be a part of and very interesting to see how that goes, you know, early next year. That is exciting because, and this may be a good segue to the next part of our conversation, everything is so siloed when you're talking about the foster care system. And every county, like you're saying, does things differently. And I understand the desire for some autonomy in that regard, but best practices are best practices. Mm -hmm. I am in agreement that somehow I think every state needs to adopt some kind of model of best practices where there's some expectation and accountability. Right, right. You know, and one of the other challenges that's related to this is, as you know, if a youth is in a Santa Clara County and then they move away, now they're the responsibility of that new county in terms of the services and the funding. What we've decided as an organization a long time ago is no matter where our scholars go, we stay with them and we keep serving them, even if there's no funding or reimbursement to us. So we have these contracts with these counties it only pays for about 20% of the services that we provide and the youth that we serve. So we follow them wherever they go. Even if it's out of state, we stay with them and keep serving them. I've had that idea for education for quite a while. Some kind of online website or tracker or something that could help provide some consistency for young people in foster care when they are dealing with the reality of moving from home to home, county to county. So I ran into that myself, right, when I was in foster care. And I went to four different high schools, and every high school had a different set of expectations and criteria for graduation. Right. So I never got certain classes because I had to meet the basics of each school I went to. Well, and think about how challenging that would be if you had very engaged parents that were helping you navigate it. It would still be difficult then. And then, of course, when you're more either on your own or don't have that kind of family structure to support that's even harder to figure that out. And we have that problem here where there's so many different services that if you say, okay, I want to go, you know, figure out what housing options there are for foster youth, just finding that online, it's just, it seems it's way harder than it should be. So that's where we can come in and really help direct our youth to these different resources. But it's just shouldn't be this hard. No, it shouldn't. I agree. I had one other question actually about your program. Let me just bounce back if you don't sure. mind. Speaking of criteria, how do your youth, quote unquote, graduate? What's the criteria for them to exit your program? Well, if a youth, let's say, for example, earns their bachelor's degree, they're officially done, but we honestly never really stop serving anyone. If there's anything that we can do, we continue working with them. But I guess that would be officially the way. If a youth ages out of the system, but then they still need our support, they want to go back to college, whatever it is, we're here and welcome serving them. You know, it makes for a challenging business model, quite frankly, because again, we're not getting any kind of reimbursement for that. But that's why fundraising is so critical to what we do. We're about a $5 million budget and the government contracts that we have only are about $1.5 million of that. The rest is fundraising and we really rely on that tough time to be fundraising right now in this economy and in this, especially this market here in Silicon Valley. But we're committed to serving you. There's really no you don't age out of Pivotal. Well, that's great that they would know that. Right. That they wouldn't have that stress of feeling like, okay, this is it. I'm on my own now. Definitely. Yeah. That's got to be scary for certainly many of these young people. So when young people leave your organization and your experience working with these young people aging out of foster care, what would you say 
are, say, like the top one or two gaps that the foster care system does not fill? And what can the system do better to either do what you're doing, or maybe there's something else out there that needs to be done that they could start doing? What would be your thoughts on that? Well, I'm not an expert on the system by any stretch, but in California, the age is now 21. I don't know if that's federally or not. I don't think so, but... No, no, it's by state. Yeah, so we've increased it to 21. There is currently a bill in the legislature that would raise it to 26. So we're very hopeful for that, that they can continue receiving services all the way up to that age. And that would just be yet another example, I think, of California, you know, really leading the way in this, in the because otherwise... So often, you know the statistics, so many foster youth within a couple of 18 to 24 months of aging out of the system, 20 to 25% either homeless or incarcerated, and a much higher number, probably half, I think, if I'm recalling correctly, you know, unemployed. That's why it's so important to increase the age and to continue serving. And I think that's why Pivotal's model is so important. It'd be easy for me to come in as the new CEO and say, you know what, we can't afford to continue serving people, you know, forever. And if we're not getting reimbursed through these government contracts, but that's not the ethos of this organization. That's not our culture. And so we're going to continue serving them as they need us, regardless of their age or their situation. Do you know much about this bill? So for example, are they saying, yeah, the kids can stay in the foster home that long? Or is it more, we're going to provide some support for these young people to transition to lives on their own? Yeah, it's the latter, not staying in in a foster, maybe other foster designated housing or group homes potentially, but not in like the traditional foster home environment. I just think if there was some kind of investment in housing, some kind of, I don't want to say necessarily centralized, it wouldn't have to be centralized, but communities of tiny homes, say, that are peppered throughout a state that young people could go to that the state would be funding. Yeah. You know, and that does happen, not as much through state funding, but much through other either private funding and city and county funding. We just, there's a great example of that here in San Jose, just this week announced they're converting what used to be a motel into housing for foster youth. I think it'll be about 60 residences or, you know, it'll be that typical almost dormitory style but housing nonetheless, you know, not each unit won't have its own kitchen, but we'll have the basic necessities for getting that going as a transitional housing for foster youth. Well, maybe grants for that kind of work. Yeah. So that it's more of a, it's kind of a partnership with nonprofits around the state. Yeah. I seem to recall in this article, it was a conglomeration of, of that. It was some various grants, city, the county, a lot of the county's requirement for developers, including like low-income housing funding for that. So a lot of different buckets coming out of, but the good news is that it's happening. Yeah. I'm very glad that it's happening. My only worry when you have an approach like that is inconsistency. Of course. Of course. And disequity from county to county or city to city. I agree. Exactly. Yeah. It would be nice to have a system that would be you know, best practices across the board, no matter where you are in the city or rural areas, rich areas, poor areas, regardless, you're going to be getting the same best practices. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of availability of especially federal grants for this kind of work. I know that, again, our board member, Dante Lartigue, who runs Raising the Bar, accesses a lot of federal grants. Those are challenging to to go through the process of, of securing them. But when you do, 
I think there's a lot of funding there and they take places and restore them and then open them up for foster youth. And think of all the commercial buildings that are now no longer being used since COVID. Oh, yeah. And not going to be, right? Right. I mean, there's a lot of that in downtown San Jose and particularly in downtown San Francisco, where so many of those buildings are talking about converting to residential. It's very expensive to do that. Mm -hmm. but It is. But, you know, it seems like there should be a lot of opportunity for low income in general, but foster youth in particular. Exactly. And the awareness around this is growing. I think around the country, at least from my observation, it seems like more and more people are becoming aware of the challenges these youth face. Now in California, I think the awareness is not across the board, but I think there's greater awareness there and let's say Michigan than in other states. But I'm seeing a trend to the positive. Well, I'm glad to hear that. You know, as I said at the beginning of the conversation, like a lot of people, I just had a general awareness of the foster care system. And it wasn't until I started really looking into it. So when I'm out there talking to organizations to become a member of our corporate partner program, or if I'm out there talking to donors or foundations, and you really share the outcomes and what the realities are, people are appropriately shocked by it. But it's amazing how many people just really don't know. Everyone goes, oh, of course, I'm sure it's really difficult to be a part of the foster care system, but they have no idea how difficult and the impact of that experience on their lives. Mm-hmm you know, the average person still doesn't know. I agree. But I think that it's, the awareness is trickling. Trickling is not quite the right word, but I think it's, it's getting out there. It's growing among certain circles. And I'm just hoping through community organizations, churches, what have you, that more and more and more people are exposed to this challenge and then hopefully getting involved somehow. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of my job is making sure that people have that awareness. And then of course, What you're doing is also helping, I'm sure, the more people that hear podcasts like this and get a better understanding, the better that's going to be. So thank you for what you're doing. Well, you're welcome. What a great way to wrap up. (laughs) Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Well, before we end the conversation, because we are at the end of our time, unfortunately, I do want to give you an opportunity to share contact information, website address. If anybody's listening and wants to reach out to Pivotal, find out more about what you do or connect with you, sure. how could they do that? Well, the best way is through the website. And we're at pivotalnow.org, P-I-V-O-T-A-L-N-O-W.org. Wonderful. And are, is there a way to donate on that website? It's very self-evident on the website, as you can imagine. <laughs> we're in our course, you know, end of year, you know, year-end giving season, you know, Giving Tuesday was this week. And we're in full, full year-end mode right now. It's going well. But yes, it'll be that'll hit you right away when you land on the website. I know we do have people who say, oh, I was contacted by somebody who listened to the podcast and make those connections. That's one of the things we're trying to do at AOI is to build the national network of organizations doing the same type of work to share best practices, to share resources, to help people to prevent recreating the wheel right? If they're starting a new organization. So I really appreciate that so that folks can reach out should they desire to do so. Great. Matt, thank you so much for spending this time with us and sharing about yourself, about your organization. Again, I'm very excited that you won an award last year, and I look forward to keeping an eye on your organization and seeing how it grows over the years. Well, thank you very much, Lynn. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. 
And for those who have listened to the end of this podcast, thank you very much. We put out a podcast oh, every couple of weeks or so, so you can find those at agingoutinstitute.org and look for the podcast link in the menu. However, we also are on pretty much any podcasting platforms. Just do a search, Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, and you can find us there. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>